Heavenly Father, I thank you for the institution of motherhood. It's obvious to say, Father, but none of us would be here except for our mothers and in your divine providence and your plan for this creation. You determined that new life would come from a mother, from a woman who has been given the privilege to bring life into the world. And Father, we now are so comfortable with the idea of having a mother, taking for granted even the important role that that woman plays in our lives, not only in bringing us into the world as you ordained, but also in the schooling of a, a young child and in the caring for the needs of those who are too young to care for themselves. Mothers are not doing this alone, we hope. In most cases, we pray, Father, that there would be a father next to her working, but there's no substitute for the mother in the life of every individual. So we honor them now in praying a blessing upon them, upon all who are part of our body and who hear this message, that you would encourage their hearts through the loving wishes of those who look up to them as mothers or sisters or as wives. We also know, Father, there are many who are mother figures, perhaps not the biological mother, nonetheless playing a role in someone's life that is just as important, and we ask, Father, that they too would be blessed on this day. And Father, as we turn to your word, Father, we study things this morning that are important, things that will help us grow and serve you better. But things, Father, that may cause us to rethink who we respect and what we hear and what we believe. I pray, Father, you give us the courage to accept the things you've given us in your word and to do as you have asked us to do. And Father, guide us in these things this morning by your spirit. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, welcome back to our study of Matthew. Let's return to the seven woes of chapter 23. This is the chapter in which Jesus is condemning the Pharisees for their part in denying Israel their Messiah. Jesus issues seven woes in this chapter altogether, and seven being the complete number of God. It's really an indication that the judgment of these men is assured by God. Each woe addresses some specific sin, some specific mistake of the Pharisees, some aspect of their corruption which contributed to Israel's demise in this day. It's all a pattern of hypocrisy, as Jesus says. Now, we're gonna study each of these seven woes in depth, and as we do, we're gonna see very clearly, at least in human terms, why Jesus ended up on a cross instead of on a throne. But our study of these seven woes is not merely a study of history. It's also a valuable opportunity to learn the methods that are used by all false teachers throughout history. You remember the same spiritual enemy is behind every deception that comes into the church. And so it shouldn't surprise us that the Pharisees' motives and their methods are the same kinds of deceptions, the same kinds of manipulation that you see among false teachers today. So as we study this chapter, let's take time as we go to recognize and ultimately avoid the false teachers that are surrounding us even now. Last week, we studied the first of these two woes. They were closely related to one another. The first of those, uh, Jesus condemned the Pharisees because he said they shut off the kingdom of heaven from themselves and from others. And what he meant was these men were being barred, as it were, from entering the kingdom because they were not devoted to following God, to faith in Messiah. Instead, their devotion was entirely to Pharisaic Judaism. 
that complex system of rules that they built on top of the law of Moses. They expected that they'd be approved by God, first, because of their heritage as Jews, and then secondly, because of their zealousness in keeping all of these rules. They did this despite the fact that their own scriptures told them that righteous people, the righteous man, shall live by his faith, not by his works. So they trusted in their system of works, and as such, they were not going to enter the kingdom, Jesus said. And because they kept telling others to do the same, they were barring others from entering as well. These men, Jesus says, were the blind guides of Israel. Or as he said earlier in the Gospels, they were the blind leading the blind. Now in the second woe that we studied last week, Jesus condemned them for a second but related issue. They were advocates, he said, for their religious system rather than for God and for his word, ultimately for his Messiah. So in the case of the first woe, it's a matter of what they believed, And in the case of the second woe, it's a matter of what they stood for, what they advocated for. You may remember in the law that Moses told Israel they were to be a light among the nations. So Israel was supposed to be that place that the world could turn to to learn the truth about God. And as such, the Pharisees should have made their goal, as the religious leaders of Israel, to seek converts to the living God from out among the pagan nations that surrounded Israel. Instead, they championed Pharisaic Judaism. They traveled far and wide, Jesus said, to find even a single person who might be willing to adopt their strict religious lifestyle. And when they found that one, Jesus says, they made that son of theirs even more zealous than they were for that system. He was twice a son of hell, Jesus said. I want you to think about how many souls the Pharisees might have influenced positively for the sake of the kingdom had they made converting men and women to faith in Messiah their goal rather than converting them to their own system. Now, when we studied these woes last week, we noticed that those same two errors are still present today in the false teachers that we find in the church today and in every age, frankly. The Bible tells us that false teachers are, first and foremost, unbelievers. They don't have this spiritual thing they claim to offer everyone else. They themselves do not possess faith, the Bible says, even if they claim it in some form. They're like the Pharisees. They don't understand the scriptures. They don't convert people to Jesus. Their goal is not the kingdom. Instead, they are advocates for something else, something of their own desire, something of their own making. Usually what they're advocating is donations to their own ministry or, quote, ministry, Uh, or maybe they want you to purchase their latest book or video series or CDs or something, prayer cloths and all the rest. What they're looking for is money, power, influence, wealth in some form, luxury in living. And they do it by appearing to be serving God. But in reality, they serve themselves at our expense. Now that's what we learned in the first two woes. We still have five more to go. And today we'll study a couple more. Let's continue in our study today with the third of the woes of this chapter, starting in verse 16. Matthew 23, verse 16, Jesus says, Woe to you, blind guides, who say, Whoever swears by the temple, that is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple is is obligated. You fools and blind men, which is more important? The gold or the temple that sanctified the gold. And whoever swears by the altar, that is nothing. But whoever swears by the offering on it, he is obligated. 
You blind men, which is more important, the offering or the altar that sanctifies the offering? Therefore, whoever swears by the altar swears by both the altar and by everything on it, and whoever swears by the temple swears by the temple and by him who dwells within it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Well, this third woe focuses on a peculiar behavior of the Pharisees concerning how men would swear an oath and how that oath might be enforced. Let's get into it a little bit. First of all, swearing an oath is simply making a promise uh, and in the course of making that promise, you place yourself at the mercy of a higher authority should you fail to keep your promise. So swearing an oath uh, is beyond the penalty of law. You know, even before you swear an oath to tell the truth, you're obligated to tell the truth. But when you swear to tell the truth, when you put yourself under a vow, you are also then assuming upon yourself the penalties of God should you fail to keep your word. So when you step into a court and you say, I swear to tell the whole truth, and then you end by saying, so help me God, what you're doing as you say that is you're making a vow before God himself, placing yourself under his judgment should you fail to keep your word. Not only then will you be held accountable by law, but you'll also say, you're, you're willing to say, I'll be held accountable by God. Now according to the law of Moses, a Jew was not to make an oath that he could not keep. And in Matthew's gospel, earlier in chapter five, Jesus told us, you know, you really shouldn't make an oath at all because you cannot know what will happen in the future. You cannot be assured that the circumstances of your life will allow you to keep your vow. And so it's better not to make guarantees about things you don't have control over and risk the possibility of having to be held to account for failure to keep your word. So if you cannot guarantee future behavior, better to just make your yes, your yes, your no, your no, and add no additional vow on top of that. But back in Jesus' day, Pharisaic Judaism permitted oaths, despite what the scriptures said. And even though the scriptures said that if you keep, uh, make a vow, you absolutely have to keep it, the Pharisees were willing to make many exceptions about that. Under Pharisaic rules, if a man swore an oath, he was obligated to keep his promise only if he swore it in a certain way. A man who swore by the temple, for example, was not accountable to keep his oath according to Pharisaic rules because they said that kind of oath was invalid. Why was it invalid? Well, the Pharisees interpreted the third commandment of the Ten Commandments, the one that says you shall not take the Lord's name in vain, they interpreted that commandment as preventing a man from swearing an oath using the name of God. They said that was taking the, the name of God in vain. And then they took the next step and they said, and when you swear by something that is close to God, like the temple, well, that's equivalent to swearing by the name of God. And so they said an oath that is made on the temple is invalid because if they were to try and enforce that vow, that would be violating the third commandment. It would be taking the, the Lord's name in vain. So if somebody happened to swear a vow on the temple, it was invalid and therefore it was not enforceable. But if you swore your oath on the gold that is used to construct the temple, well now that's uh, kind of one step removed from God. Now we can accept that oath and we'll enforce it. And Similarly, they would disavow any uh, pledge made on, the, made on the altar, but they would accept a vow made on the sacrifice that sits on the altar and so on. Now, those distinctions appear pointless to us, of course, 
But there was a method to the Pharisees' madness when it came to these standards that they established. The Pharisees were using this system to help dishonest businessmen escape their commitments for a price. So a person might make a vow in a business dealing, and they needed to invoke the authority of God in their swearing, in their vow, if their vow was to be seen as credible by the other person and therefore likely to be kept. But because they couldn't swear on the name of God and risk blasphemy, they had to you know, walk around that issue by swearing on things near to God. So they'd swear on something close to God, like the temple or the altar and so on, and that allowed them to invoke his authority within the context of the vow, but at the same time, it created this arbitrary distinction and offered plausible deniability so that when they wanted to break the vow, there would be a rule on their side. So, for example, if the businessman later wanted to break his vow and get away with it, he might go to a judge of the law, in this case the Pharisees were the judges, and he would ask to be excused from his vow. And for a price, the Pharisee would then come up with a rule which said, oh no, that vow was not valid, I'm sorry, he swore on the altar, that's not allowed, he can only swear on the sacrifice, sorry about that. It was the equivalent of fine print in a contract. And that rule allowed for the perversion of justice and for the enriching of Pharisees. They would rule the vow was, was invalid, they would let the businessman do what he wished, and they would get their money. Jesus is condemning them for this perversion of justice and their perversion of truth just to enrich themselves. It's a corruption of their power. In verses 19 through 22, Jesus says, first of all, you know, these distinctions you've invented, they're not fooling anyone, certainly not fooling God. And for that matter, everyone knows what's going on here. In verse 19, he points out, you know, your rules are so contrived, they're actually backwards. They're actually self-contradictory. They don't even make logical sense. I mean, why should the gold used to construct the temple be more sanctified than the temple itself? Or why should the sacrifice on the altar be thought of as more binding and valuable to your vow than the altar that holds it up? Their backward logic was simply evidence that their rules were nothing more than excuses to break a vow. There's no sense to them. So Jesus says in verses 20 through 22, if you swear by anything in the temple, you're swearing by God himself. He, he pulls the rug out from underneath this whole game they're playing. He says, look, everything in the temple is equally associated with God. After all, that's the whole point of making a vow, right? That's the whole point of, of mentioning any of it. The whole point of it was to invoke the authority of God so as to seem to bind the person to God's punishment should they break the vow. But they were trying to have their cake and eat it too, as the saying goes. They wanted to appear to be bound by these words, but at the same time, they wanted a get out of jail card, a loophole that let them say in the end that God wasn't gonna enforce it. The Pharisees were always looking for something like this, loopholes, ways they could manipulate the system for financial gain. They were always playing these games. They were perverting justice, giving license to the people to do the same, all of it shaming the name of God, in the pursuit of wealth. And in the end, they're bringing condemnation upon themselves. That's what's happening here, of course. These woes are Jesus' official condemnation of these men. And this pattern that I just described is perhaps the defining characteristic 
of false teachers in every age. False teachers universally share a love for money and an insatiable desire to gain it through the corruption of religious practices. To quote from Paul, they see godliness as a means of gain. Or to quote from Peter, who calls this practice the way of Balaam, listen to what he says about these types of people. In 2 Peter 2.14, he says, they have eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls who have a heart trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. Peter says these false teachers, I love the description there, it's so perfectly characteristic of some of the people that I'm sure you're aware of that are out there today preaching the wrong messages for the purpose of personal gain. Paul, uh, Peter says these false teachers love the wages of unrighteousness, which is a reference to the wealth of this world gained at any cost. They have hearts trained in greed, which is a way of saying they have learned from others of their kind, other false teachers that they watch doing their work, they have learned, they've been trained how to do what they do, the most efficient ways to fleece the flock. You ever notice that? Some new angle appears in somebody's ministry, something they've discovered that triggers people to give them money, and next thing you know, they're all doing it. They're all trained in these ways of using greed to fleece the flock. And the Pharisees, for example, follow this profile perfectly. Luke 16, 14 tells us that these men were lovers of money. This was their whole motivation. And you see plenty of false teachers following that way today, and here's how you see them. They typically live lavish lifestyles, worldly lifestyles that are made possible by the money that people send them in response to their call. They make religion into a money-making enterprise. And in fact, I would argue that the love of money is such a consistent feature in the behavior of most false teachers. You can actually use it to see these people coming from a distance. And by that I mean this. Uh, Before you follow someone's teaching, take a look at their lifestyle choices. Take a look at how they live. Look at the fruit of the tree, in other words. Are they living a worldly, lavish lifestyle? Are they clearly pursuing this world rather than pursuing eternal rewards in heaven? And is the pursuit of wealth a constant refrain in their teaching? Do they just keep encouraging their audience to have that same love? Is it their one and only message? The lovers of money are everywhere. Now, keep in mind, being a lover of money does not automatically make someone a false teacher, obviously, but it is a warning sign. And at the very least, it may indicate that though the person isn't a true false teacher in the full sense of the word, nonetheless, they're carnal and they're spiritually immature. That is, if wealth has entrapped them. And you no more want to be a student following a carnal, spiritually immature teacher than you do want to be a follower of a false teacher. They each have their own problems, certainly. I want you to look at what happened to Israel. Back in Jesus' day, they were following false teachers, the Pharisees. And as a consequence, they were so deceived when Jesus came, their own Messiah came to them, they openly rejected him despite his miracles, his teaching, and all the rest. Why? Because Pharisees told them to. And why did the Pharisees say reject Jesus? Because he threatened their wealth and power. 
So because of the greed of false teachers, Israel, that generation of Israel, was shut off from the kingdom. That should tell you how serious it can be if we, got, if we get entrapped by the wrong kind of teaching. Imagine what a, a greedy false teacher can do to your walk today if you are willing to follow them off a cliff. They may rob you blind of your money, certainly that's the first goal they have, but they may also rob you of eternal rewards in the sense that they get your mind off of eternal things and off of obedience to the word of God and they appeal to your lust and to your desire for things of this world and next thing you know, you wake up decades later having chased the wrong things. At the very least, they're gonna distract you away from the eternal concerns that God wants you to have your mind on. So that's the problem with the third woe. uh, Men who turned godliness into a means of gain and used it to deceive people. So now he moves to the fourth woe. That's in verse 23. Matthew 23, 23, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. All right, now... This is our fourth woe, and for the third time of the first four, Jesus introduces these men as hypocrites again, because once more, they're acting in ways that are contrary to the things they say. In this example, the topic now is tithing, and it's not gonna go in the direction I think you might suspect. It's a little different than that. The issue here isn't tithing per se. The real issue here is something much more important. Now, on the topic of tithing, the law required that Jews, under the law, tithe in three different ways. And if you added up all that they had to give according to these three areas of tithing, it would result in a total giving of somewhere between 20 and 30% of their income on an annual basis. One of those tithes was on the production of their crops. And the produce that came out of their land had to be tithed upon. A tenth of it would go to the temple and it was food for the priests or for the poor. And the Pharisees would do this, but they would take the next step as well. They would tithe even on the herbs that were produced in their little house garden. They would count out one-tenth of the leaves off of an herb plant or the seeds from a spice plant, and they would give that to the temple priests as well. Now, the law of Moses never specifically required tithing on the herbs in a household garden. That was actually a rule invented by rabbis and incorporated into the Mishnah. But that doesn't mean it was necessarily wrong. Even Jesus says in verse 23, they should have done that. They should tithe on anything they can tithe on if their heart is to do the right thing. That wasn't the problem. The problem was they had adopted that extreme measure hypocritically. It was part of their continuing effort to appear pious and, and scrupulous in keeping the law in front of those who would watch what they do, but they did it only to gain that attention. And they were willing to do it in this case because it cost them nothing. I mean, the value of one-tenth of an herb plant was minuscule, didn't matter to them, not much of a sacrifice, not in comparison to the value of the appearance that it offered to those who might see them doing it. Meanwhile, Jesus says, they ignored weightier provisions of the law, which demanded much higher levels of personal sacrifice. And in particular, he lists a few things that they were willing to toss aside. Things like justice, mercy, faithfulness, not minor things by any stretch. He's speaking about situations in which the Pharisees use their power as judges 
to pervert the law rather than enforce it properly. So they might deny someone freedom even though they were innocent because it would suit some adversary or they failed to convict a guilty criminal when it suited them because of a bribe or a political favor with Rome or whatever it might be. In other words, the point here is the Pharisees selectively obeyed the word of God, picking and choosing to suit their own interest and that's the issue of the fourth woe. It's not simply about tithing. It's about selective obedience to the word of God. Typically, they only chose to obey the most minor of provisions like tithing herbs and so on because it was easy and suited them. And then they would just as quickly disregard weightier provisions of the law because it was hard and demanding and self-sacrificial. And Jesus sums up their behavior in verse 24 with that famous figure of speech. He says, they strain out a gnat and they swallow a camel. It's a comical and vivid illustration of this hypocrisy. Imagine someone going to great lengths to remove the smallest insect from a cup of some liquid before they drink it, making sure it's completely free of that little insect. Meanwhile, when the time comes to swallow, they make no effort to stop the occasional camel from wandering down their throat while they're happening to drink. I mean, it's it's obviously ridiculous, but it is a vivid illustration. That's the sin in view here. That's the problem here in the case of the fourth woe. Selective obedience to the word of God in a hypocritical and manipulative fashion. And it's a classic practice of false teachers because it allows them to appear righteous without having any of the substance of it, without making any true effort to be the person they claim to be. They will easily uh, adhere to some minor uh, insignificant command within the Bible and then make a, a show of that, you know, show how impressive it is that they can keep that little rule. And they want you to see it. They want you to praise them for it. And then just as equally, they will fail to keep major tenets of the Bible, major principles of the scriptures because those major principles get in the way of what they desire. And of course, you and I can play these same games with God when we want to, and unfortunately, I think most of us do from time to time. Perhaps you've encountered a Christian who will tell you over and over again how committed they are to the word of God. They study it, they they tell you how much they love it, and they wanna do everything that it says. And then when it doesn't appeal to them anymore, when some event in their life comes along, and now it's inconvenient to do what the Bible says, they'll be willing to ignore some rule concerning marriage or sexuality or speech or something. All of a sudden, they'll make an excuse for why the Bible's standard of conduct in this case doesn't apply to them. They're happy to follow it when it does, but when it, does, when, when it gets in their way, they'll toss it aside. That's selective obedience to the word of God. And Jesus says, we're not fooling God. Whatever reason a person may have for why a rule does not apply is just hypocrisy and excuse for disobedience. And you could say it this way, what do you call 99% obedience to the word of God? You call it 100% disobedience because to break one law is to break them all. To be a lawbreaker is to be a lawbreaker. We can't allow our obedience to the word of God to vary based on what suits us. Because if that's how you approach the Bible, if the Bible is simply an instruction manual to show you how to do things you already wanted to do, well then, you've never truly been obedient to it in the first place. You're just playing a game with yourself, telling yourself you're obedient because you follow the ones you prefer. Now how do false teachers of our day repeat this pattern, this pattern of selective 
obedience. Well, they do it in a variety of ways, but there's one pattern in particular, one style of selective obedience that's particularly prevalent today. You'll see this everywhere today, and that's the one I wanna use today as an example because I think it's actually the most pernicious. False teachers today will often quote a minor, obscure verse or passage within the Bible taken out of context, usually, and then they will take that and prop it up as uh, support for some false claim that they wanna make. And they demand your obedience to that small, minor, obscure point, as I said, usually misinterpreted. But at the same time, they will never address, they will never talk about primary teaching of the Bible on the same topic as the one they're raising. Why? Because if they were to do so, it actually undermines their case. It undermines their argument. Let's look at an example today that's very common. You'll see my point. You'll see how this works. False teachers today are commonly telling us that when you give money to God, which is a euphemism because you're really giving it to their ministry, when you give money to them, they tell you that that will result, result in a return on your investment. They'll describe what amounts to a little more than a pyramid scheme in which a little money invested with them in their ministry will ultimately return many times more to you because God will reward your giving in that way. Typically, they run to a set of well-known verses, well-known because they've used them a lot, to take them out of context and support their argument. One of their favorite verses to support this notion comes out of Luke. And let me read it to you. You've no doubt heard it. Luke 6, 38, when Jesus says, give and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. So false teachers today will interpret this verse in a very selective way, while at the same time contradicting the major teaching of the Bible on the topic of wealth. First, they start by presuming in that verse I just read to you, that when Jesus says, give and it will be given to you, they presume that the it in that verse is talking about money, about wealth. But did you notice that in that verse, Jesus never told you what it was? It refers to something that Jesus talked about in an earlier verse. That's how pronouns work. Pronouns have antecedents. They have proper nouns that precede them. So in order to understand what Jesus is talking about in Luke 6, 38, I'd have to go back a bit and find out what is the it that I'm supposed to give. But the false teachers never do that homework with you. They never read the verses that precede verse 38. And why don't they? Because if you discovered what the it truly was, it would completely destroy the argument they're trying to make. Let's do that homework. Let's just back up two verses. In Luke chapter six, verse 36, Jesus says, be merciful just as your father is merciful. Do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. And he goes on from there. In other words, the it in that passage is not money. The it is forgiveness, mercy, pardon. Showing that to others, the Lord says, will result in the Lord giving the same back to you. By the same standard of measure that you use in giving out your mercy and forgiveness, the Lord will use in showing you mercy and forgiveness. Now we discussed this principle back in Matthew 6 where it comes up in Matthew's gospel, so if you're curious about that 
concept. Go back to Matthew 6 in our teaching and you can learn it there. But for this morning, I just want you to take note of the fact that this passage in Luke is not about money at all. And yet, false teachers over and over and over again go to this verse and repeatedly suggest to you that it is a statement of scripture, they would even call it a promise of scripture, that if you give money to God, he will give you even more in return. They are describing a Ponzi scheme where every investment goes up and everyone gets a huge return on their money. And it is a lie. That is not what Jesus said and there is no promise in the Bible to that effect. This is an example of taking a single minor moment in the middle of a passage out of a larger conversation and overemphasizing it in a way that's out of care keeping with the context in order to support a lie. Now, I'm not saying forgiveness is a minor concept in Scripture, of course. What I'm saying is, on the topic of money, this verse is of no importance because that's not the context here. It is a verse that is simply easily manipulated and done so so that these false teachers can turn hearts to giving money. And they love to preach on this. I have heard more than a few sermons in my lifetime from false teachers where the whole sermon is this verse, the whole thing is selectively attending to the word of God in a false way so as to manipulate the audience in a lie. And once you believe this lie, once you have this concept rooted in your heart, the Bible says it then plays on the lust of that unstable soul, as Peter says, enticing unstable souls. The, un- the instability here is not in the sense of emotionally unstable or you know, mentally unstable. We're talking about spiritually unstable. They're not founded on the rock of the truth of the word. They're tossed to and fro, James would say, like the ocean. They're too easily pushed around by people who tell you what the Bible says because they don't know what it says themselves. And they're manipulated in this way. Once you believe someone who tells you that if you give God a dollar, he'll give you back seven, man, you're gonna send that person your last dime. You're gonna go to your grave penniless thinking and wondering why God never showed up with the money. And in the end, as they get rich and you get left holding the bag, you often start to wonder, can God's word truly be trusted? You know, friends, it's not God's word that you can't trust. It's hypocritical, lying con men that you cannot trust who have myopic misinterpretations of the Bible. That's where the problem is. They overemphasize a minor point taken out of context so they can deceive you, and then at the same time, they ignore the larger context of the Bible. They ignore the major things. So we should ask, what does the Bible say about wealth? On the major topic of wealth, what is the Bible's teaching? Well, the Bible's principal thrust in its teaching on this topic is you should not seek for wealth, not in this life. Instead, use your efforts to obey Christ and look forward to a reward in heaven. I want you to consider the following brief statements. You've heard many of these, but listen to how they directly refute the teaching of false men and women who claim God wants you to be rich. Matthew 6, 24, Jesus says, no one can serve two masters, for he either will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Luke 12, 15, Jesus said to them, beware and be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. Hebrews 13.5, make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have, 
For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. And Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, 9, and 10, he says, but those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare or a trap, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction, for the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Is that not a perfect description of what we're seeing happen with these false teachers? The Bible says first and foremost that Christians should be content with whatever you have given to you by God and you don't make your life a pursuit of riches. If you desire money too much, then you're likely to fall into a snare or a trap set by false teachers who tell you that God does want you to be rich. And moreover, godly character should desire to be free of a love for money, not to cultivate that in our hearts. So even if you are blessed by God with an abundance, and perhaps many of you are, don't become dependent on it, and certainly don't get too attached to it. Just talk to Job about that. Jesus says, wealth is not the measure of one's life. That measure will be taken in heaven at the judgment seat of Christ. That's where the measure of us is actually found. Meanwhile, the Bible never makes any promise to us that the more you give God, the more you get here on earth. And friends, generally speaking, the math on this is very simple. When you give your money away, whether you give it to the church or somewhere else, you will have less money afterward. Look, it's not complicated. And it's okay, because being generous with what you have is a good thing according to scripture and it builds up treasure in heaven it's a good testimony it's a it's a way of loving other people uh you know when you do that you're doing the right thing regardless of whether it returns more of the same to you or not now look the lord is going to take care of us the writer of hebrews says you should be content knowing he will never forsake you and that he will be there with you there's a promise in the basic caring of god for his people there is no promise that he will make you rich This is such a good illustration of how false teachers selectively use scripture to achieve their own aims rather than doing what the Bible calls them to do, which is to teach the whole counsel of God's word. If people taught the whole counsel of God's word, which is a way of saying from Genesis to Revelation, leaving nothing out, then there would not be an opportunity for this kind of manipulation. First and foremost, if you're trained in the whole counsel of God's word, then you'll be in a position to recognize nonsense when it comes your way. And you'll be largely inoculated from these snares and these traps. Never mind the fact that the more you know about God through his word, the more that will impress itself on your heart and bring you to greater godly character over time. And Jesus condemns the Pharisees in this case for the hypocrisy of intentionally steering clear of things that contradicted their desires and overemphasizing things that suited their purpose. That's the modus operandi of every false teacher. That's why they are blind guides. I like to think about how Paul ended his ministry. You know, there's a moment in the book of Acts in chapter 20 when Paul is on his way to Rome He's not sure how much longer he'll live. He knows he's going to be um, brought before Caesar. And he takes a stop along the way near Ephesus as he's journeying back to Rome in a ship. And when he docks in Ephesus, he calls for the elders, or when he docks uh, in, in Miletus, I believe, he calls for the elders of Ephesus to come down and meet him. And as they come down, he gives them what amounts to his last instructions to those men. 
And he says in Acts 20, verse 27, I did not shrink, that is, I did not hold back from declaring to you the whole purpose or the whole counsel of God. So here's Paul potentially facing the end of his life, not sure how much longer he's gonna be around, and when he has one last chance to talk to the leaders of a church that he helped establish, Paul told them, you know, when you think of me, here's what I want you to remember. I did not fail to share with you the whole counsel of God's word. And I would argue that that is perhaps the greatest thing that could be said about any teacher of the Bible, that that person was not selective in what they taught, but rather they taught the whole counsel of God's word. It shows not only they have a heart to bring everything good to the people of God, but secondly, it's evidence that they're not holding back something for their own gain. It's proof that they have good intentions. You know, teaching verse by verse in the way that I do is my way of following in Paul's footsteps. It's also my way of showing you my work. You ever heard that phrase, show your work? You know, math teachers are famous for this. They'll tell their students, don't just give me the answer, show your work. And the reason they ask for that is because it's not merely good enough that you might happen upon the right answer by chance. They wanna make sure you knew how to get there. And in the way that I try to teach the Bible, in the way that Pastor Mike teaches the Bible, I think in the way that anyone who has the best of intentions should teach the Bible, is show your work. Not just say, here's what you should believe, but walk somebody through the Bible in such a way that they can see for themselves this is in fact what God's word says. It's not something Steve made up. He's showing you what the page says. Now, at that point, you have a choice as a student, as a hearer of God's word. You can decide you like what you're hearing and follow it because you like it or that you don't like what you're hearing and you dismiss it because you don't like it, but neither is the right way to go. What you should say to yourself is, if that's what God's word says, and I can clearly see it because Steve showed me his work, I know this is what's in the Bible. Well, now you wrestle with God, not with me, not with my opinion, and as such, you're in a position now to let your heart move to where God is, as opposed to trying to bend God to your will. And I would advise you that no matter who you go to for your teaching, you seek that same standard of showing the work. That is, a teacher shouldn't just tell you what the Bible says, they should walk you through where they found it and give you assurances that they're not just taking minor things and making them major things, they're giving you the full counsel of God's word. And if somebody can't do that or won't do that, then perhaps there's a problem there. Perhaps you should be concerned. Either they don't know what they're talking about or they're trying to deceive you at worst. Either way, you should seek for better teaching because our time is short and your own sanctification is on the line here. It should matter to you what you learn about God. Next week, we're gonna finish the woes and as we do, we leave this chapter and I will give you a bit of a heads up. We follow this into chapter 24, arguably the most important chapter in Matthew's gospel, at least in terms of what it says about the future. I'd highly encourage you to be a part of that study with us when we get there in a couple of weeks. And I hope that what you've learned today will help prepare you for a lifetime of good study in the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word of God and for men and women who will divide it rightly and share it with us properly. For all those who have taught us in years past, we lift them up to you now, Father, in thanks. We thank you for their diligence. We thank you for their commitment and sacrifice. Most of all, Father, for their obedience 
to teach the whole counsel of God's word as best they could by your spirit. And Father, with what we've learned today and in all the times we've studied, I pray, Father, we would as well be thinking carefully about how to prepare others as we may have opportunity, how we can show the truths of the Bible to them from the perspective of the whole counsel of God's word. Protect us, Father, from false teachers whenever they may walk in our our midst. Help us to see their hypocrisy and their lies before it becomes a part of our own walk. And Father, if it be your will, I pray that you might bring them the truth, that they might be turned from their false ways, as Paul was when he became the apostle of the church rather than the Pharisee that persecuted the church. Help them to know the things you've shown us. And Father, protect your church, protect us in these days as we await your return. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.